I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On an October evening in 2016, a young woman attended a small party where she was hired to work as a dancer. But was this invitation a ruse with an ulterior motive? This is the Angie Barlow Story. Hi, Megan. I miss you, but I love your new studio. Thank you so much. And thank you and James for the hard work and getting it set up. I posted it on Instagram to brag because I am so thrilled with it. I know it came out great. But the but is it means we're recording remotely. And that's why I said I missed you. But I'm so happy that we are able to do this and not have to push back. And we're just lucky. Yes. Now having the ability to record remotely, we can pump out some more content. That's right. All right. Today's case, Amy, is one that a listener asked us to look into. And I felt compelled after I researched it to cover it for today's episode. You might have noticed, but I've been drawn to a number of these cases where women have gone missing. And especially, I think, because some of the ones I've been looking at have not received the national coverage that I want them to receive. And so I feel that by covering these cases, we can better inform people. And I really just want to help the families. I was fortunate to speak with Angie Barlow's mother, Christina, for this case, who was happy about our coverage, and she helped to fill in a lot of blanks for things that I couldn't find, you know, online, readily accessible. Anyone who's interested, Christina does interviews. If you Google the case, um, she's outspoken, and she will speak to anyone who's interested in helping her find justice for her daughter. 
We sincerely hope that we can help Christina. And if anyone knows anything after listening to today's episode, please say something. I will give you specific directives at the end of what you can do and how you can help. And thank you to our listeners and supporters who not only make it possible, Amy, but motivate us so much to keep bringing you important cases like this one. Born Angela Jean Barlow on August 21st, 1992 in Denver, Colorado, to parents Steve and Christina Barlow, Angie was the oldest of four girls. Angie was very close with her family, and as mom Christina described, the best older sister to her three younger sisters. While she didn't live at home at the time of the event that we're discussing today, she still regularly hung out with her sisters, who all reportedly adored her. Her mom, Christina, said that it wasn't totally uncommon for Angie to visit home, go out with some friends, come home at like one or two in the morning. Her sisters would wake up, get excited, and they would start watching bad movies, usually horror movies, my favorite too, while Christina would wake up and make what she said the girls either snacks or an early breakfast. That's a good mom. Christina said that Angie was happy and living life to its fullest. She had moved from Muncie, Indiana, where her family lived, to the city of Indianapolis, where she worked as an exotic dancer and lived with her best friend, Mona Jackson, with whom she had been best friends for several years. Mona says that they were much more like family than friends. And though Angie's parents were not thrilled about her dancing for a career choice, Christina said that she respected Angie's independence. And the fact was, she said Angie liked dancing. She was happy to be doing what she was doing. She was happy with her life. Angie mostly worked her regular dancing job at a club, but she sometimes did private parties as well because they were very lucrative. But she was pretty careful about these private dancing jobs in people's homes. Now, turning to a particular private party, Angie had been contacted a few times by an anonymous and unknown female caller regarding a private dance she wanted to arrange for her husband for their anniversary. Angie did not acknowledge the first few calls because they were unknown, but eventually Angie accepted an offer from this caller to do a private party for the evening of October 26, 2016. As I said earlier, Amy, Angie did not typically do private parties, but she had just taken a trip to Miami. And when she got home, she was pretty broke, having spent a lot of money in Miami. And Amy, I know that you get this because didn't you do a recent trip to Miami as well that that was very expensive? Yeah, it was about a year ago and I'm still trying to recover. Exactly. Well, I think that was the the point here. So even though it was not in her total comfort zone, the money was just too good to refuse. And so Angie made plans to visit an apartment at Landmark Apartments and Townhomes of Indianapolis. The caller provided instructions that Angie should wear a matching lingerie set that was either red or black and that she was going to wear something similar. The caller also provided Angie with the gate code so that she could enter. And on that evening, Angie used that code and entered the gate sometime shortly after 11 p.m., which video surveillance would later reveal. When inside the home, we know that Angie posted a Snapchat of herself smiling in a selfie in the bathroom. So she gets into this home. She does not appear to look scared or uncomfortable at the time. It's, you know, just a cute, happy Snapchat. However, Angie was still not entirely comfortable as she sent the following text to her roommate. Remember Mona, her best friend? Mm -hmm. It said, quote, doing a private party at this address just in case I go missing, LOL. While she wrote LOL, Amy, there was nothing funny about the fact that Angie Barlow was not seen or heard from again after this evening. The next day, when Angie did not come home, Mona contacted Angie's mother because she was very concerned. And Christina, her mother, was also scared. Angie was not the type who would not have come home without explaining why. 
or where she was going. So Christina and Mona both knew immediately something was wrong. Christina called Angie several times and left messages for her both on her phone, text message, and on social media for her to please get in touch right away. But she didn't hear anything back. So she and her husband got in the car and drove the approximately 60-mile distance from Muncie to Indianapolis. When they got to Angie's home, she was not there, and it was clear that she had not come home as her Yorkie Pablo had gone without food and water, and Angie would never have allowed that. According to Christina, she began calling every hospital and jail between Muncie and Indianapolis. And though she did not want to, and it kind of sickened her, she even contacted a morgue. But there was no sign of her daughter anywhere. Mona was also hard at work that day, I just want to point out. Remember, Mona had a screenshot of the address where Angie said she was dancing the night before. So Mona decided to head over there and see what was going on. By herself? Yep. It was daytime. When she got there, she tried the gate code, but no one answered. And so she hopped over this gate. And I don't think it was an easy one to hop, but I'm going to call this best friend strength. She got over it. I would do that for you. Uh, You know, I was thinking the same thing. She headed to the exact apartment where Angie said she was. And according to Mona, the place was, quote, cleaned out. So it was empty. Like moved, like people moved out? Yes. Like everything. And this was the day after? Yes, it was. Wow. So Mona did not have a good feeling. And after this discovery, a very upset Mona and Christina went to the Indianapolis Police Department to file a missing persons report. However, this is going to be very upsetting to you. It was to me. They filed a report with a certain detective who placed the file on his desk and left for vacation for four days while nobody in law enforcement was looking for Angie. I think this highlights the issue of, number one, not taking missing women seriously. And I'm wondering if Mona also mentioned her occupation Mm -hmm. and how much that played a role. Yeah, I'm going to say I I thought the same thing. I think her profession definitely impacted the decision here. You know, it's really upsetting because we know that the first 48 hours are like the most crucial. So for four days to have gone by, I mean, this is not a good start. What was the family doing during those four days? Oh, they were hard Did at they work. Start? They were uh-huh. making calls, okay. uh, flyers, posters. You know, they, they were doing it. Like, like we've seen with so many other cases before, the family mobilized. When the police did begin investigating, they quickly found surveillance footage showing Angie's car going into that apartment complex, you know, where she had the private party. But what it also showed, Amy, was that Angie's car left that complex at approximately 3.30 a.m., followed very closely by a second vehicle. So they both went through the gate at the same time. I'm talking about no delay. There was not like a car might have come around. It was clear that the car was right behind Angie's. And while the police could not identify the driver or the passenger, they got a license plate for the second vehicle. And they traced it to a young woman named Raven Miller, whose boyfriend was Baron McCullough. So Angie's mother, Christina, called Raven, asking her if she knew where her daughter, Angie, was. But Raven said that she didn't know anyone named Angie. So Christina smartly thought, oh, maybe Angie used her stage name. So she asked her if she had seen Diamond. Raven said something to the effect of, Oh, yeah, she was here last night for a while, but she left after some dude called her around 3 a.m. Now, Angie knew this couple, and she did not have a good relationship with Raven because she had had a brief relationship with Baron, and there was some tension. Plus, Raven never provided her name in the text requesting this private dance, and so this seems suspicious right away. Seems like a trick. So Angie had no idea that she was going to her ex-boyfriend's home. Yeah, she did not know not looking good. No, it does not look good. Police interviewed the couple who said that Angie had come to their party. Though, Amy, I want to say that they're calling it a party. We don't know who else with this, was at this party. 
And police have not revealed that information if they know. I asked Christina as well. And she said that she thinks there was someone else there, but she has never been informed who or how many people. So Raven told the police that Angie came, but she left with some guy around 3 a.m. and they never heard from her after. The couple, Raven and Barron, also said initially that they didn't leave the apartment at any time. But remember, there was that surveillance footage. So when confronted with the surveillance footage of their car leaving the complex right behind Angie's, the couple shut down the interview and stopped talking immediately. This is always surprising to me. Do people forget that there are cameras everywhere? Yes, I think they do. They forget that. I think they forget about cell phones. I think they just think, you know, I can tell a lie and I'm not going to get caught immediately. They probably don't know there's cameras in the complex, although I would know that if I lived somewhere, but fair point. And although they got caught in this lie, the police didn't feel they had enough to charge them with anything. So they let them go home. And shortly after, and I mean very shortly after, the couple up and moved to Phoenix, Arizona. I could have predicted that that was going to happen. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Angie's car, a blue Pontiac G6, was found 12 days after her disappearance and less than 10 miles from the apartment complex where Angie was last seen. The car was searched thoroughly by the police who took swabs of DNA, fingerprints, and other items from the car. Now, we don't know if any of these items were of value, but I did see it was reported that there was some blood in the back seat of the car. I don't believe it was a large amount, just to be clear. What we do know about the car is that it was seemingly trashed inside and very banged up, having a large dent on the passenger door and cracks in the lights. And according to Christina, scrape marks. She said that Christina said she kind of thought the car almost like went underneath a fence, which scratched the whole car. After this, though, Amy, the trail went cold for a while. But Christina had a second phone call with Raven in January. So this is about three months following Angie's disappearance. According to Christina, Raven went kind of on this rant about how the police were just trying to make her look bad, but she didn't actually need money from anyone. She owned plenty of cars. She was never going to be evicted. So this information came about during the investigation that Raven was, you know, low on cash. And so they were thinking, was this a possible financial motive in Angie's disappearance? According to Christina, Raven talked about herself a lot during that call. But in a very chilling moment, Christina asked, what did you and Angie talk about that evening? Because Raven said, oh yeah, she was here for a while and we talked. Guess what Raven's response was? She said, quote, you want to know what her last words were? Can you believe that? So at that that very moment, Christina said she knew Raven had done something to Angie. Well, because Raven is essentially saying your daughter is dead. How would she know she's dead if she wasn't involved? I think that sounds like an admission for sure. Can you imagine how chilling that would be as a mother to hear that from someone? And it's taunting her too. You know, it's not, you know what I mean? Like it feels like a taunt. Yeah. Is she still with Baron at this point? Yes, she was still with Baron. Four months later, an odd event indirectly related to Angie and criminal in nature put Angie's case back on the radar of the police. So in this event, Angie's grandmother was a victim of fraud. So about $8,000 was fraudulently withdrawn from Sharon Barlow's bank account. A local woman named Michelle Brown was arrested and questioned about the fraud and about any possible connection to Angie. They're trying to find, like, does this have anything to do with Angie's disappearance? But she said that she didn't know Angie or her grandmother. Rather, she knew the routing number for the bank, which is possible because I think routing numbers are pretty common. And so she said she knew the routing number and she guessed at an account number. I'm not sure about that. Nope. Three other people were arrested in conjunction with this fraud. Police said that Angie had her grandmother's bank account information, and they felt like there might have been a link between the two, but they have not been able to show any links so far. 
But this lead came just a month before another major discovery in the disappearance. Angie's mother, Christina, and her friends and family never stopped looking, posting flyers, manning social media, following up with any information, and even posting a reward. But they weren't making much progress. Then, eight months after her disappearance, a tip comes in. According to Christina, a source who was anonymous called the police tip line to report the location of a young female's remains. Buried in a five-foot grave in the backyard of a house that was previously abandoned but had just recently been occupied again, was a young woman's body, and detectives were pretty certain that it was Angie Barlow. Her mother, Christina, said that she found out on social media while in the dentist chair that it might be her daughter that was buried there, and she prayed, of course, that it was not Angie. But sadly, when Christina saw photos of the remains, she was able to verify that it was, in fact, her daughter buried there, specifically because Angie had identifying tattoos that her mother knew very well. The house was located on the east side of the city. It was about a 15-minute drive from that apartment complex where Angie was last seen. Though the coroner did not release the cause of death, a reporter somehow found out that Angie Barlow was shot to death. And her mother, Christina, confirmed this in some of her interviews. Detective Torres, who is the lead detective on this case, has said in interviews that Raven and Barron are persons of interest in the disappearance and murder of Angela Barlow. It seems it seems to me that there is enough evidence to pursue these two. Oh, I think so. Let's get into this and let's talk about this. There are, you know, just the two leads that I presented above involving the fraud against Angie's grandmother and the Raven and Baron lead, which seem to be quite significant. And Amy, like you said, for me, there's circumstantial, there's enough circumstantial evidence here for an arrest. But let me also summarize what the leading theory is by Detective Torres and Angie's mom, Christina. You know, what their theory is about what happened to Angie and how did she get there and how did she go in the home? They believe that Raven and Baron lured Angie to the home under false pretenses, right? Motives here include the possibility that Raven was angry at Angie, seeing her as a romantic rival and wanted to get her out of the way. I asked Christina about the extent of Angie and Barron's relationship. You know, what happened? And she wasn't quite clear. She said there was a brief fling that she believed it was when Raven and Barron were maybe, you know, taking some time apart or on a break. But we don't know whether or not there was overlap between the relationships of when Barron was seeing Angie and Raven. It's possible. And Christina was not sure. Sorry if you're going to get to this, but was there evidence of sexual assault on Angie? There was not or not that's been released. So that, you know, there's a possibility that she wanted to get her out of the way or she was angry with her and this is, you know, payback or she saw her as a threat arrival. And then there's the second possibility of a drug connection. So apparently there was some drug dealing among persons associated with all three of these people. So Baron, Raven and Angie. And a possibility was mentioned that Angie might know too much about these illegal activities Kind of speculation. Actually, I would say this is speculation at this point, and there's no concrete evidence to support that motive right now. Um, but I do know that there is a feeling among, you know, I'm going to say her mother and other people that there is a drug connection, and this is a possibility. But no evidence to support no, that. Theory, no evidence as far right as now know. to support that. Continuing though, Angie didn't know that Raven and Baron lived there. She didn't know that this was their, you know, address, and it seems obvious 
that Raven was at the very least hiding her identity, right? We've established that. She never, you know, she never provided her name. Well, that seems like evidence that would support premeditation also. I absolutely think so. But so how would they get Angie inside? If Angie shows up and sees Baron and Raven, Christina says there's no way she would have gone in. Now that's, you know, maybe she's wrong or maybe there's another possibility. You mean like this possibility of a third person that lured her in? That's exactly right. And then once she got in, and then once she got inside, she was met with these other two individuals. That's exactly right. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, not once she went inside because she took that Snapchat. It would have to be they were hiding somewhere in the home and they maybe it was a blitz attack. Who knows? Yeah, but certainly what you said is correct. There's a strong feeling among, you know, Christina and I, I believe Detective Torres, who I did leave a message, he did not respond, that there there had to be at least one other person there to for Angie to have felt comfortable going in. And as we saw in the bathroom, that Snapchat photo of her, she also felt comfortable there. And and that was taken at 1145. And I mean, we know that she was there. You know, she not only took that Snapchat and sent the address to Mona, but Raven admitted, yeah, she was here hanging out for a while, talking with us. But after that, there's no sign again of Angie Barlow, only her car leaving that community followed immediately by Raven's vehicle. Raven and Baron cleared out of the apartment the next day, according to Mona. And when questioned subsequently by the police, they lied about leaving the apartment early in the morning, even though it was shown on those surveillance tapes the police had. And then Raven and Baron shut down the interview. So, Amy, this is not conclusive proof of a crime, but it sure does not look good. Whose name was the apartment in? I believe it was in Raven's name, but I'm not positive. Gotcha. It was definitely they lived there together. I know that. And they actually moved out like there was nothing left in the apartment. That's what Mona said. She said they cleared out and they did move out very quickly. I don't know if it was immediately or, you know, I don't even know if it was they were in the process of moving, but it did seem that they left very quickly. So does Raven say that's just a coincidence that they were planning on moving? She absolutely does. She I located actually a video of Raven uh, posted on Reddit, though I'm not sure where it originated because it seems to be a like a repost. But Amy, it is not flattering, okay? Raven is angry. She's spouting about the fact that she's sick of people talking about her. Oh, that she cooperated with the police, that her house was searched and there was no blood there, that her vehicles were taken and searched, that she gave her DNA and that she has nothing to hide and all the haters are just giving her free publicity. I don't know what she's booked for, but she said in this video, I'm booked for 30 days straight. She was yelling. She's shaking her hands. Is she um, is she a dancer as well? I think she was a dancer at the time. She said that she didn't kill anyone. She also said that police have video surveillance of her and Angie at McDonald's that night. So I asked Christina about this because I could not find any information about that. And Christina said that Raven has never made that statement before, that rant, and that the police have no such surveillance because it does not exist. I believe if there was surveillance of the two of them out, we would absolutely know about this. And I dug mm-hmm. on this one, too, and I couldn't find anything. Raven also says that she only spoke to Christina once. She never said that line about, you know, oh, you want to know what her last words were? Christina um, said that this is a bold-faced lie, and she would never forget those words spoken about her daughter. Why would Christina make that up? I don't see any reason that I can think of that she would be lying about that conversation. Not only do I think she's not lying, I think it had such a devastating impact on her that she would never forget the exact words. Her rant comes across as belligerent. This is my this is my take. I'm just going to tell you. It comes across as belligerent, narcissistic, and offensive in many ways, but it's also a proclamation of innocence. And if she is innocent and she's being harassed, then we might understand this. 
because we allow for the possibility. But then get this, Amy, just when when you think it's, you know, not going to get any worse, Raven considers herself a rapper. And so she's made several rap songs and videos. And in one of them, she includes a line about, quote, smoking on Barlow. Have you ever heard this before? No. Well, um, it means basically rubbing it in Angie's family's face about her death. Like it's a spiteful, vengeful kind of act. At first, when she said like smoking on Barlow, I'm like, uh, is she admitting to killing her? But it's it's not quite that. It's like it, she's admitting to taunting her family about it. According to Christina, the lyrics in one of her other rap bits are as follows. OK, I shot her dead in the parking lot and then I hit her in the spot. I could not find this one, but I believe Christina is paying close attention. So I I suspect this was available at some point because she quoted that exactly. And as we know, Angie was shot and she was buried. Interestingly here, Amy, I read that Gavin Newsom, you know, Gavin Newsom, governor of California. He passed this recent bill prohibiting the use of rap lyrics in criminal court proceedings unless a prosecutor can demonstrate in a special hearing that they are particularly relevant to the case at hand. Hmm. Have you ever heard of something like this before? No, that's random, but I can under I can see both sides of it. Yeah, because it's supposed to, you know, yeah. um support like creative content not being used against, you know, a person. Yeah. Uh, however, I mean, I'm just going to say if they can find the lyrics that Christina claims Raven rapped about shooting her in the parking lot, hiding her in the spot, I'd like to see that come into play because I think that is relevant to a later prosecution. Yeah, but I think you'd need a lot more corroborating evidence, which I think they have. I mean, the law passed applies specifically to hip hop music. And I think it's because of, you know, racial biases here. So, yeah, of course, we can understand the legislation. It's just that I don't want to see you know, and it doesn't apply. This is just a side note. It doesn't apply to Raven. I just don't want to see her, you know, able to exclude, especially if this is a reference to what she did. I don't want to see that escape any Mm -hmm. future court proceedings. Do you agree on that one or no? I do agree. Yes, I do. And I don't mean that for everyone too. I understand the point. Um, I just don't want to see her, uh, you know, be able to taunt the family, go and rap about it, say it's creative and then have that, you know, not be used as part of the evidence. But you're right, Amy, they have a lot, I think. What happened afterwards, too? Raven and Barron moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where Raven opened a nail salon. The pair subsequently split, and Barron reportedly moved back to Indianapolis after taking a truck driving certification course. Turning to Christina, like I said, I spoke with her for, you know, quite a while. She said that she had to go on with her life. You know, she had three other daughters, and she now has a grandchild, and she's you know, moving on. But she is very, very committed to finding justice for Angie. She continues to do interviews, press conferences, and in general, she really advocates for justice for her daughter. We really want to do the same thing here, and we hope law enforcement officers are paying very close attention to Angie's case and the individuals named as suspects. And what people can do, remember I said I was going to give some action points? Mm -hmm. Well, if you have any information about the case, you can contact the Justice for Angie Facebook page or Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS, or you can contact lead detective Jose Torres by calling him at 317-327-3741. There are multiple people who have information about Angie Barlow's murder, and we hope they'll come forward if they can help finally solve the senseless crime. There's something I forgot to mention before too, Amy, and this was a really key point. The house you know, where she was found. Mm -hmm. That came from a tipster, right? Well, that did not come from Raven or Barron. They clearly were not calling in to report where Angie's body was. 
So that is either the third party in the house, a fourth party in the house, or someone else who, you know, might have heard this secondhand account. I think there's actually more than three people who know about this, which is odd to me because I usually think that when there's three or more, they can't keep the secret. I was just going to say that we we've talked about this in several episodes where I don't necessarily agree with you, but you strongly believe that when there are more than two, more than three people with information, somebody's going to say something. I think three or more almost every time cracks. We've received emails about it where, you know, that's not happened. But I think at the very least, we know there's increased likelihood. So, I mean, I teach serial offenders. I teach about serial murder. And one of the facts is when you have serial murderers who are teams, they get caught much quicker because there's two of them and someone cracks, someone does something wrong, they leave evidence, they talk. It just increases the likelihood. One other fact that I left out earlier, guess whose family at one point lived at the house where Angie's body was found? Barron's family? That is correct. At one point, Barron's family occupied that house. At what point, though? When when did they occupy the house? It was years before. However, that's a very strong coincidence, don't you think? That's more than coincidence. Who, what kind of family? Was it like siblings, cousins? You know, I'm just wondering like how close he was to the family. You know, I don't recall, but I still think regardless, it, it was it was certainly immediate family. Yes, I know that it was immediate family. I don't like those coincidences. And, you know, a lot of law enforcement officers will actually tell you, a lot of police will say there are no coincidences like that in these types of investigations. So criminological theory is a little bit harder for us today because we don't really know the actual motives, but we can certainly turn to the system. We often discuss whether the system got it right. Here, we don't have much because the individuals responsible for Angie's death have not been apprehended. They've not been tried in a court of law. There's been no conviction and there are no answers. Now, how do we look at this? There's two ways, okay? I've seen cases, we've seen so many cases that have been made on much less circumstantial evidence than this. However, perhaps the police want to wait until they can get every bit of evidence so that when someone or more than one person are tried, there'll be no chance of an acquittal. Because, you know, sometimes the idea here is that if we go for it once and we lose Double jeopardy attaches and you Mm -hmm. can't try them again. It's interesting to me, though, Amy, because we so often deal with cases involving aggressive arrests and prosecutions when we don't see enough evidence. And this case is just the opposite. What do you think? It's similar to what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode is I wonder if the victim's occupation or way of life makes it not a priority for law enforcement. I would hate to think that's the case. I hope I'm wrong. Given what I presented to you today, do you think there's enough? What do you think? Do you think they should wait or should should there be a rest in this case? Is there enough? It seems like there's enough evidence. I just haven't heard you talk that much about Barron. It seems right. to focus a lot on Raven. Right. Like, what's the deal with Barron? Right. Well, that's because, you know, the evidence that they have was, you know, it's Raven's car. Barron, remember, Barron has never talked. They, did, they, they didn't interview them after that. So the evidence is certainly linking back to both of them. But I think there was a lot more of a focus on Raven, also because she's outspoken. I also find it hard to believe that there was no DNA found in the car. Yeah, I do, too. Like, was the car not processed? Was it, the car was there processed. More evidence no, that- the car was processed and they found some blood. And I think it, I think that it belonged to Angie. But you might expect to find I don't believe there was a large amount and that you might expect to find in your own own car, you know, possibly a small amount of blood. I'm not sure. Yeah, I would expect there would be some biological matter that would 
be found in Angie's car that was linked to Baron or Raven. I also, I'm assuming they did finger uh, fingernail swabs on Angie. It just, it just seems strange to me that there is no biological evidence anywhere. Well, first of all, because the police have been very quiet and hush-hush, we don't know that it's possible that they do have that evidence. But I would also say that the swabs and the nails might not have produced anything if the nails were intact because she was shot and this wasn't a struggle. Uh, It was a blitz. We were thinking it's a blitz attack maybe or... Exactly. So that wouldn't be totally out of the realm. Do we know if Raven or Baron own firearms? Has there been any linkage found between the bullet... No. You know, Megan, it is a strong circumstantial case, but as I'm thinking about it more, I'm not sure that there's enough evidence at this point. Yeah, I'm torn on this one. I I do see enough circumstantial evidence, but I do understand, and I think Christina understands as well, the fact that they want to get it exactly right. And, you know, maybe there's also someone to come forward. In fact, that's the way I'm going to end today. I brought this episode so we could spread the word. Please, we encourage anyone with information to report it And of course, we're going to keep looking at this case and we'll keep you all posted with any developments in the Angie Barlow case. Thank you, Megan, for this important case. Thank you, Amy. And thank you to the listeners for today's episode. But before we leave, we have a few questions from our supporters. Our first question is lighthearted. And our first question is, what would your last meal be? I've I've played this game with people. Like I love this question. I feel like we've. I feel like I could probably guess yours, Megan. Could you try? Yes, and then I want you to guess mine. I think your last meal would be Diet Coke. Oh yeah. Wine. Yep. A good steak. Yep. And ooh, I actually don't know what your last dessert would be. Well, but also next to the cheesecake. Next to the steak, I also want like serious fries or potatoes because you know I don't really eat carbs, so I'm gonna have that. That's why I didn't even think. I don't associate you with carbs. I know. And my dessert would be like a chocolate lava cake. Oh, yum. Yeah. Okay. So your last meal would absolutely be a carb, but I would be hard-pressed to pick which carb it would be, to, to be honest, because it would just be full of carbs. I know your sweets <laughs> would be chocolate. I know you'd have wine, your Sauv Blanc New Zealand. Which carb would you go with? Would it be like a pasta or? No, I actually think I would do sushi. I absolutely oh, that's right. love sushi, but rolls, not just the pieces of sushi. I want my carbs, so I need the rice in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would do a bunch of amazing special rolls and some warm chocolate chip cookies, crunchy on the edges and soft on the inside. Mm, love it. Okay, great question. <laughs> not to be too specific. <laughs> like, not that Amy's thinking about that for later. Great question. Okay, we All have right. one more question today. This one is a question that's more related to uh, criminology, criminological theory. And this comes from a supporter who asks, what do you think causes psychopathy or antisocial behavior? Is it more that it is born or bred or is it both? We both cover this in our classes, and it's very hard to say because we see examples of violent offenders who were brought up in very supportive, loving environments, and they end up being extreme. They end up being psychopaths. On the other hand, we see people that are brought up in environments that are very dysfunctional, and they end up being very successful and happy. So it's it's really, to me, it, it, you really can't say it's one or the other. I will say, though, that when there is a biological marker— It is strong and it will often, no matter how positive an environment is, a strong biological marker can overtake that. Agreed. This is a hotly debated topic in our field, too. One thing I would like to add is that when I teach serial murder, I will tell you that almost all serial murderers had 
some type of biological marker or biological event that happened that was serious. Like a brain injury. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. uh, almost every one of them. So I think that is somewhat of an indicator, but certainly has to do with environmental um, trauma as well, I think. Great question. Thank you so much for that. Okay, that is everything we have for today. We appreciate everyone listening and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include wishtv.com8, primewatchdaily, wrtv.com, USA Today, and an interview with Angie's mother, Christina. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.